0: All right. We're going to deal with the homework assignment first from Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Your homework assignment was the angels came and ministered to Jesus. How? And like I said, we're going to use Scripture to come up with our speculation. As I told you when we closed last time, it will be hard to find a whole lot that tells us what about the specific ministering was. But if you were to do a study of angels you find out there's a ton of stuff about angels and so what i want to do before i get to asking you your homework and how you did and what some things you came up with what i want to do is kind of lay a foundation real quick in order to better answer this question it's going to help us to do a brief study of ways in which angels have been involved in people's lives in the scriptures. so i'm just going to refer to some there'll be a couple of passages we'll look to but In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Don't miss that. Angels are ministering servants sent. That's a very important thing for where we're going to go tonight. They're sent by God to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Who are those who will inherit salvation? Us. Us, the believers. Exactly. Those who are sent to minister to us. All right. Go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, look at verses 20 and 21. It says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones, who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here we see that the scriptures teaches us that the angels again are mighty ones who what? In verse 20, they do His word, obeying the voice of His word. All right? The, the, the angels are ministers. They're His hosts. They're ministers who do His will. So Psalm tells us, Hebrews 1 tells us, that angels are God's ministers, His servants, that accomplish His will. Now, um, we also, if we're going to go back and look, we're not going to tonight. In Genesis 19, we see that angels protected Lot and his family, they also struck the townspeople with blindness, and they also destroyed the city. If you go back and read that whole episode with Lot and his family, the angels literally physically protect them. When Lot goes outside to talk to the townspeople who are trying to get in to get after the angels that had come to visit him, there comes a point where they're pressing up against him against the door that the angels actually crack open the door, grab Lot, pull him in, and shut the door. Then they are able to strike everyone with blindness where they're like groping around and they can't find him anymore. And then later on when they drag them out of the city, say, come with us, come now. We can't destroy the city until after you're out of the city. They then have the power to destroy the city. They're pretty powerful people. We see in Genesis chapter 28 that Jacob saw angels ascending and descending, a ladder that went between heaven and earth. It's interesting if you wanna do a fun little study, you parallel Genesis chapter 28 where jo- Jacob sees this ladder going between earth and heaven, and the angels are ascending and descending on it, and you compare that with John chapter 1, verses 43 and following, where Jesus meets Nathaniel, and of course Nathaniel says, if anything good comes from Nazareth. And then Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip came to get you. And the guy says, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus says a very interesting thing. He says, uh, you believe because I said I saw you under a tree? You're going to see greater things than this. You'll even see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A clear reference to G- Genesis chapter 28. The ladder between earth and heaven is Jesus. It's Him. Now, again, but we see angels involved in that process. We're not going to go any deeper than that for now. In Daniel chapter 6, we see an angel shuts the mouth of lions. If you go and read that story of Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel responds in the next morning that an angel came and shut the mouth of the lions. In Daniel chapter 10, we see that an angel brought God's word to Daniel, but that angel also had a struggle against Satan and his minions, the demons, angels that have left their their first place. He had a struggle in doing it. You know that story. Some of you do. If you don't, you look at it later on in Daniel chapter 10. He prayed and God sent an answer right away. But it took that angel 21 days to finally get to Daniel because of the spiritual opposition as he came to bring the message from God. So angels in the Old Testament brought messages from God to people. All right. The Bible actually says that you might have even been visited by angels and you didn't even know it. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews chapter 13, look at verse 2. It says, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison, Oops, sorry, verse 2, not verse 3. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We could tell stories upon stories, probably tonight, about times in our life, as we look back, that God used the stranger in a way that as you think back over it, you thought, you know what, there was something about that that was more than just human. And some things happened in that way. The Bible actually says that you can be ministered to by angels and they looked human, talked to you, and you didn't know it. Some are ministered by angels unaware. In Revelation 14, we know hopefully that an angel is going to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world all at once. We're not going to get turn there. But back when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, he says, And then the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Unfortunately, we over the years have had preachers tell us that as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end can come. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, because Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, that this gospel has been preached in all creation. Romans chapter 10 says that his word has gone out to all the earth. The gospel still needs to be brought because there are new generations being born every year, every day, if you will. But we still to be sending missionaries and sharing the gospel as we go. But don't think that one day the gospel will make it to the whole world. Did God not care about all those generations that have lived on this earth until the gospel finally got to those areas? Of course He did. His gospel has been preached all along. Matthew when He said, sorry, Jesus when He said in Matthew 24 that the gospel be preached to the whole world and then the end will come was referring to the angel at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 and 7 that there's going to be an angel that preaches the gospel to the whole world one last time out loud for the whole world to hear it and then the end will come as Jesus comes back. These are all ways that the angels have ministered or done work for God on the earth. We can see from the scriptures and will. But none of those work for our homework tonight, so th- I'm going to give you two examples in just a second from Scripture that may help us answer the question of how did these angels minister to Jesus, but before I give you the correct answer, no, I mean my, my study, I want to hear from some of you. What are ways that you, or how do you think from Scripture that the angels ministered to Jesus? Go ahead, Rick. Well, I already told you earlier, I think the angels were ministering to him uh, in the spirit. So you're, you're saying that they were ministering to him in the spirit. So are you saying that they weren't there physically? No. They were there physically. Were there physically. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, the, I'm, I'm just saying, I just know that the word of God says that, you know, if we're to worship God, that, you know, God searches for those to worship him. And, spirit and truth right so you're saying that they that they came and ministered to him in spirit i'm going to say yes but we need to get more specific and again like i said give me scripture and you gave me one that's good give me scripture though that ties with it what i see a hand in the back i think he brought him something to eat ha you think he brought him something to eat uh, well, but okay, you are right. I believe they did as well. But scripturally, where do you get that? In the Old yeah. Testament, with the you well, go to you got it. First Kings nineteen. Go to First Kings nineteen again. You're going to see that the Scripture gives us lots of clues as to how God does things if we let the Scripture speak for itself. In First Kings chapter nineteen, look at verses one through eight. This is after the Mount Carmel experience where all the prophets of Baal were put to death and Jezebel gets upset about it. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, Lord. O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So here's a situation where Elijah was up there by himself and an angel brought him food. Scripturally, we see that God did use an angel to provide food for Elijah. Jesus has been in the wilderness now for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry. There's a strong chance that part of the ministering that the angels did to Jesus was to bring him food. It would match up with Scripture. Again, speculation's okay if it matches with the Word of God. Plus, if you do a little study, do you want Warren, do you want to bring out the root word of that word minister for us? Diaconian. D-I-E-K-O-N-O-U-N? Yep. Usually translated ministering or attending can also mean serving food. Did you catch that? I had looked over his shoulder and saw his homework. He did some good homework, and I wanted Warren to get some points here tonight. But the word, the Greek word actually has the root of deacon in it, servant. But that word also is the same one that could be used when you take the Hebrew scriptures that are translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, you'll see that the same word is used in 1 Kings 19 when they brought him food, that word could mean brought him food. But there's another place in Scripture as well that gives us a little bit more information as to how they ministered to him. Anybody else have another idea? Go ahead. From Luke 22:43. 43. You nailed it. You nailed it. Luke 22, 43. Go ahead and read it for us. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Exactly. Go there and look real quickly, folks, at this. Luke 22, verses 39 through 43. By the way, you all get a gold star. You did your homework. That was fun. You don't understand what an encouragement that is to me. Because my job is to teach you how to feed on the word of God and to grow in your relationship with Jesus. My job is not to get you addicted to Jim's teaching. My job is to teach you how to read and study the scriptures for yourself. How to show you that it's here. Use the gifting he's given me to hopefully be used to God to excite you to finding things for yourself. And you'll grow in your understanding of him in luke 22 starting verse 39 and and jesus came out and he went as was his custom to the mount of olives and the disciples followed him and when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying father if you're willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will be be but that but yours be done and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. But we've got to go a little bit further here, because how did he strengthen him? And I think Rick, this is kind of what you were kind of referring to a little bit when you talked about in the spirit. How did he strengthen How did the angels strengthen him? Did they did they have power in themselves that they could just give Jesus a good hug that charged him back up? No. But the power of the Holy Spirit the speaks to us, and so when we don't know what to pray, we pray. okay. You're, you're getting close. You're getting close. Definitely. But that's what we have from the Holy Spirit helping us. But the angels, the angels aren't going to be able to give something to Jesus, who is God, things that he doesn't already have. Do you see what I'm saying? There won't be any power coming from them that he was lacking. So how do they strengthen? Again, the answer is in the scriptures. The answer is always in the scriptures. If you'll take the time to let the word of God speak, go to First Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. And look at verses 15 through 18. David is at this point already been anointed the next king of Israel, but he's in the point where he is running and hiding from Saul, and he's not having a good time right now. And in 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 15, it says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. How did Jonathan strengthen David in the Lord? He encouraged him with what? With what God had said. Listen, folks, I think without question, the angels came not only bringing food, but they also reminded Jesus of what God has said, what the Word says. I mean, if Jesus himself kept quoting scripture to Satan, don't you think the angels came and reminded Jesus of God's plan and his purpose? Bible actually says that we're to do that with each other. We have a tendency sometimes to think that bringing comfort is to come and say, put our arm around each other, say, there, there, you'll be okay. Well, that doesn't really bring encouragement. But what will bring real encouragement? Well, the truth. Paul said to um, Timothy, you know, don't don't forsake the word word that has been laid upon you and prophecy that has been placed upon you. Right. So go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, this is scripture, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another In accord with jesus christ that together you may with one voice glorify god and the father of our lord jesus christ therefore welcome one another as christ has welcomed you for the glory of god here the scripture says that the scriptures have been written so that we would what we through believing in them and knowing what the word says we'll have encouragement we'll have endurance we'll have hope look jump to verse 13 of chapter 15 may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope We don't know specifically. We can't 100% sure say we know how the angels ministered to him, but I think we do. I think the angels came and reminded him of what God had said, encouraged him, and strengthened him in the Lord, and I think there's a strong possibility they brought him some food. It's stuff the angels did. So, now I have to warn you. With this knowledge, there are those, unfortunately that pray to angels. And I'm going to say very, very clearly and very, very carefully, don't do it. (laughs) Actually, the Scripture does say don't worship angels, but in a couple of places. Let Let me give you a couple. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Even angels say don't do it. Exactly. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, look at verses 9 and 10. This is after... John's been given this amazing glimpse of what's to come. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is the angel. John says, I fell down at the feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So did John learn his lesson? No. Go to chapter 22. Look at verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Some of you, knowing that God's going to use angels to minister to you, are going to be tempted now to say, oh, angels, could you come help me? I remember a comedian years ago talking about people who always have these angels hanging from their mirror, you know, in, in their car and all this stuff, because they're, they're, they're people can get so focused on angels. And I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures that talk to about the danger of that. But he also wrote a little song. He says, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not afraid of anything big and hairy as long as I got that plastic Mary sitting on the dashboard of my car. Folks, be careful because you're going to have a tendency. Satan's going to want to come and tell you to pray to angels now because angels are ministering servants. And some of you are going to say, well, God is so big and and he's so busy. Oh, don't fall prey to those lies, folks. There's nothing too big for God. There's nothing too small for God. He knows every hair on your head. Yes. Remember, angels are ministering servants. What? Sent. They're sent. They're not going to come if you call anyway. If you pray to an angel, is the angel going to come? No, because they only come unless the father tells them to come. And the Bible says, we'll go to Colossians chapter two. The Bible says we're not to worship angels. Colossians chapter two, look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. By the way, who's the head that we're holding on to? Jesus. You're not to worship angels. Does God use angels? Yes. Has he used angels in your life? Almost certainly. But don't fall prey to thinking you need to pray to angels. Go to Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 24 and 25. I actually found this passage as I was looking through uh, a book that I had uh, on angels by Billy Graham. It's a wonderful book as I was looking in my research, doing my homework. But in that book was a little slip of paper that my wife had left when she had done a study. And she, on her little paper, she doesn't know that I chose, stole from her notes. And she had in there not to worship angels in this passage right here. And it's a great one. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Are angels created beings? Don't worship angels, folks. Don't pray to angels. You seek the Lord. Remember, angels are sent. One last passage before we get into Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Go to Matthew 26 and look at verse 53. Jesus is in the garden, and they're coming to arrest him. And in 26 of Matthew, verse 53, Jesus says when Peter tries to defend Jesus with a sword, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Could Jesus command the angels? Of course he could. He made them. But even Jesus, remember when he limited himself, he said, I could ask the Father and he could send angels, but even Jesus doesn't assume he can just call the angels. He turned to the Father if he was gonna do that, but it wasn't the Father's plan. So, God will use angels to minister to us. It's a big part of His plan, and they do and have in many ways. Thank God for it. Some of you better treat strangers a little better than you do. (laughs) I'm just quoting Scripture. Doesn't the Scripture say to show hospitality to strangers? Because some have actually entertained angels and you didn't know it. I gotta be honest with you. In certain situations, when I run across somebody in a strange situation, and a lot of times I'll be wondering, because you never know how they're going to appear, what they're going to look like, or what God has in mind. Again, I would love to tell stories upon stories. I know God has used angels in my life over the years, and they're amazing stories, but that's not what the point is for tonight. Tonight, the angels ministered to Jesus, and know that God will use them to minister to us. Go back to Matthew 4 now, and let's take a look at verses 12 through 17. Yes, you may. I may not answer it. <laughs> How about those who may pray to Jesus mm-hmm. and then pray in Jesus' name? Okay, where are you going with this? Is there the Is Jesus God? Then what's wrong with praying to Jesus? you got to be real careful. The people, though, that say you have to pray this prayer to Jesus and then pray this prayer to the Holy Spirit and this prayer to the Father, and because the Father does these things and Jesus does these things and the Holy Spirit. And there are those who will say this kind of prayer goes to the Father and this kind of prayer goes to Jesus. Now, don't don't get taught all that mess. Jesus is God. What you're saying, you know, if, if you believe, asking in my name. Exactly. But the in my name just simply means with my authority. I don't even have to end my prayer in Jesus name. I can just talk to the Father because of the authority that I have because of my relationship with the Father because of His Son. When I pray, I pray in Jesus' name. I think saying in Jesus' name is a good reminder for us, but it doesn't make God say, well, He didn't use the magic words. You know what I'm saying? When you just talk to the Father, you don't have to say the magic words. If you're in Jesus, you're already in His name. It means in His authority, in His relationship, with His permission, with His power. If you're in Christ, Every prayer you pray is in Jesus' name. You're able to boldly go before the Father. We get so caught up. People want to, well, did you say it right? Did you, were you baptized in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Folks, be careful of those people because they're trying to get you focused more on what you do instead of just faith in God and what He's promised in His Word. So, a great question. Don't worry about how you pray. If you're in Jesus, pray. Sometimes some of those best prayers are, Help. Well, who are you talking to? Yes. God, help. Help. All right. Now, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he, this is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a section we're going to start to break down now tonight, and uh, we won't finish it. And we'll, we'll pick it up next time we get together uh, on this. But let's see how far we can get. Now, I need to say something to you right now as we move into this section that will hopefully be helpful for you. And I'm going to say it before. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Matthew is not chronological. In other words, if you try to read Matthew and verses 12 through 17 say this, and then you think that verses 12 through 17 happened before verses 18 and 19, you're going to get messed up. Because I'm going to show you that actually... Matthew jumps around. Matthew has a purpose, and he's writing to the, Jew, to the, the Jewish uh, believers and to the Jews who weren't believers to show them that Jesus was the prophe- prophe- prophesied one and the fulfillment of the prophecies, that he's the son of David, the, you know, the son of Abraham, and so on, as we looked at at the beginning. But Matthew, in his purpose to communicate to the Jews, quoting tons of Scripture, as we've already begun to see, doesn't give us a chronological account of Jesus' time on the earth. Because as you see here in the very next verse, verse 18, it looks like that's when he then begins to call his disciples. I'm going to show you tonight that actually there are some clues here in verse 12 that show us that that Matthew's jumping ahead in the timeline. Look closely. There's a couple of clues here. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew to Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So there's two clues there that show us when this actually happened. You see, I'm going to show you tonight that actually this isn't the first time Jesus goes to Capernaum. What we read here in verse 12. He's referring to the time that Jesus had heard that John had been arrested. And then he moves to Galilee permanently. Jesus has already visited Galilee prior to this. He's already been in Capernaum prior to this. What Matthew's referring to is when Jesus leaves Nazareth and makes his home base in Galilee. But there's a lot that happened between his baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, and then when he moves to Galilee. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some of those things. Go to Luke chapter 4. Again, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, you'll see that it looks like that's when he then goes and picks his disciples. No, that had already begun prior to all this that we're looking at. In Luke chapter 4, look at verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, it says, And he, Jesus, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding countries, and he taught in their synagogues, glorified by all. So what does the Scripture say here? He returned to Galilee. Do you see it? In my Bible, the heading says, Jesus begins his ministry. Yet he's already been in Galilee. So watch out for the headings. They're not inspired. All right. Look at verses 16 and following. And when Jesus came, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. By the way, that's in Galilee. Lower section of it, if you will. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue of the Sabbath on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum... Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath." And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So here we see in Matthew's account that Jesus moves to Galilee when he hears that John's been put in prison. And around the same time is when he was chased out of Nazareth. But here in Luke's account, we see that when he's chased out of Nazareth, he'd already been to Capernaum because they said, do the things you did we heard you did in Capernaum, do them here. And we see in the scriptures tells us that he returned to Galilee. So, folks, what I want you to understand is if you just try to read Matthew in chronological order, it's gonna mess you up. So, what Matthew's referring to is the time that Jesus moves there and sets up his home base, if you will, in Galilee. He'd already been there. And I got more evidence to show you that. Go to John chapter 1. John's account, thank the Lord is chronological you'll even see that a lot it'll say and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day in John chapter 1 look at verses 35 and following it says the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said behold the Lamb of God by the way this is John the Baptist Jesus looked at him and said, "You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, Cephas, which means Peter." The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, "Follow me." Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, "We have found of, him of whom we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." Nathanael said to him, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Philip said. Come and see. So here we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts gathering disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea. Remember, John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea and around Jerusalem. And so with John the Baptist still standing there and pointing to Jesus, said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A couple of his disciples no longer follow John, become disciples of Jesus, and they run and grab a couple of their brothers, and they go grab them, and they follow Jesus. And Jesus makes his way now. We just saw that in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip but he found Philip by the way in Judea but they make their way to Galilee and they're heading to Bethsaida where Andrew and Philip and Peter were from and if you know what happens next in chapter two what happens in chapter two you got it there in your Bibles it's the wedding at Cana in Galilee look closely at uh verses one and two on the third day again very very chronological there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of John Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with who? With his disciples. So at this point, Jesus already had some disciples. If you go back to Matthew, it looks like Jesus doesn't start picking disciples until after he gets to Galilee. The scripture tells us in John that that wasn't the case. Matthew has a purpose in writing, and he's going to jump around to accomplish his purpose. So that will help you as you study Matthew. But also go to John chapter 4. We got Jesus doing the wedding at Cana in Galilee, and um, at the end of chapter two, I'm gonna just say it to you this way: they go, they go back to Jerusalem at the end of chapter two, all right? And he clean, cleanses the temple. Do you see it? Uh, look verse twelve of chapter two. I told you to go to verse, chapter four, but jump back to chapter two. Look at verse twelve. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. But the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up. It says up because it was up in elevation. On our maps, it's down. But he went up to Jerusalem in the temple and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep. And then Jesus goes and cleans out the temple the first time. If you do a study, you'll realize Jesus actually cleans the temple out at the beginning of his ministry and in the last week of his ministry. He actually does it twice. So Jesus has already gone to Capernaum. He does his first miracle at the wedding. He's there for a while. How long was he there? They stay there for a few days in Capernaum, they're in Canaan, then they go to Capernaum, there for a few days, then they go back to Jerusalem. Jesus was always going back to Jerusalem at the feast days. Remember we talked about that, how he fulfilled all righteousness? So now he's in Jerusalem. He meets Nicodemus in chapter 3 in the area of Judea. Go to chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So here we see that now there's a little more information. Jesus actually hears that their Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders are getting a little bothered by the fact that he's getting more disciples than John. Right around this time is when John the Baptist is thrown into prison. Right around this time is when he's chased out of Nazareth and he makes his way to Galilee. Jesus spent most of his time in the three years that he did his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Would he go to Jerusalem? Yes. Off and on at the feast times. But then he would go back in his home base was around the area of where Peter lived. Actually, you'll see that he actually heals Peter's mother-in-law, and Jesus spent most of his ministry time around Galilee. Back and forth every now and then to Jerusalem. He actually moved to Bethany in the last week of his life, stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus until he died. But most of his home base time wasn't in Jerusalem. Actually, that's why when he went back to Jerusalem the last time before he died... The disciples were surprised that he was going back to Jerusalem. Why? Because the last time he was there, they tried to what? They tried to kill him. So Jesus spent most of his time around the Sea of Galilee. That's important. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Now Jesus had heard that John had been arrested. Look at verse 12. When he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Go to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at 1 and 2. It was prophesied way, way back, the time of Isaiah, that Jesus was going to spend most of his time in Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them a light has shone. So here we see something about Galilee. This is the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does anybody know when it says the land of Zebulun and Naphtali what that means? Those were two tribes of Israel. Remember the tribes of Israel? Sons of Abraham and Joseph. But they were all sons of Abraham. But then and sons of Jacob, I mean, not Joseph, sons of Jacob you got Naphtali and Zebulun are two of his sons. And if you look on a map of the Bible times, they lived, Zebulun and Naphtali lived, right up on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Area of Capernaum, Bethsaida, all these areas that you're going to see referenced. The prophecies, though, said, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then it goes on again and says, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone." Now, I got to show you what the life was like in Galilee, if you will in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun before the time of Jesus. Does anybody know, were they in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Very good, northern kingdom. Remember, the southern kingdom was just Judah and Benjamin in the the south. All the rest were the northern kingdom. Did the northern kingdom have good kings or bad kings? They're mostly bad kings. And because of their bad leadership, God allowed devastation to happen to all those lived up and who lived in that area. Go with me real quick to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, Asa, by the way, is the king in the southern kingdom, Basha, the king of Israel, with the northern kingdom, went up against Judah and built Ramah. So this is the northern kingdom actually fighting against their own brothers, the southern kingdom. Then he might permit no one to go out or to come in to Asa, the king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house. And he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who lived in Damascus. And he said to him, there's a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa, and he sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, abel Maam, and all the store cities of who? Of Naphtali. When the northern kingdom is fighting against the southern kingdom, and early at the beginning of the time of the, the, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, Bash is the king, and he goes and he fights against Asa, the southern king. Asa then makes a pact with Ben-Hadad, and the king of Assyria and says, hey, would you go up against my brothers and help me defeat them? So they did, and he takes them all captive. But then things got better, right? Things got better for him, you know? Now go to, um, ah, for the second time we won't go there, but if you go and look at the story of Pekah when he was king over the northern kingdom, I believe it's in Second Kings. I don't write offhand, I don't have it written down in my notes here. But when Pekah was king over the northern kingdom, Assyria came and captured the area of Galilee again. This is near the end of the time of the, the northern kingdom before they're taken into captivity. Pekah's the king, and Assyria comes again and takes them captive. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 said that the area of Galilee, Naphtali and, and Zebulun, they actually had been in gloom. But there's not going to be gloom for them in the latter times. Why? Because on them, a light is going to shine. And the light that shone on them was who? It was Jesus. But I want to close in the time that we have tonight dealing with something kind of serious. The Bible actually says that with great light comes great responsibility. So I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 20 through 24. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Or you Bethsaida, does that sound familiar? If, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. By the way, Tyre and Sidon is Philistine country. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here we see that the scripture prophesied that the great light was going to shine on Galilee. Yeah, they had had gloom in their earlier days. But in the latter days, they were going to have a great light. Great light was going to be given to them. And now we not only know that it was the great light, it was the light himself that came into the world. Jesus spent most of his time around the Sea of Galilee. Most of the miracles he performed were all in that area. He did amazing things. And then he says, by the way, Capernaum, Bethsaida, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon or in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. It's going to be easier on the day of judgment. For Sodom and Gomorrah, then it will be for Capernaum. Why? To whom much is given, much is required. Listen closely. The scripture is very, very clear that when the Bible talks about to whom much is given, much is required, we've always looked at the rich people versus the poor people. That's not what the Bible's talking about. If you look at the context of it, it's actually tied to how much light we've received. The Bible's very, very clear that You will be judged in accordance with how much God's opened your eyes to. Does he give everyone the same amount of light according to the scriptures? The answer is correct. It's no. Because he just proved it to us here. They've received more light than Sodom and Gomorrah had. And they're going to be judged in accordance with the measure of light they received. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. How do you relate that to the Spirit? We're all filled with the Spirit. We're full, all of us. And what? Okay. (coughs) And the Word. I mean... Well, We're going to come back to that in just a second. But hang on to that. We will deal with that. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. Jesus says, And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. They're going to be those who are going to be judged because of their sin, but they won't be judged as harshly as those who had more light, more understanding from God. By the way, what does that say about the judgment that's coming on the United States of America? In comparison to the rest of the world, folks, it's going to be severe. Listen closely to what I want you to hear. We keep thinking, oh, we're a Christian nation. Well, God bless America. And boy, we just the." Listen, our nation has had more light than any other nation in the history of the world. Our nation was founded on Christian principles. The people that came over here came because of the word of God and their desire to know him and to worship him. Our first colleges and seminaries were built for the study of the scriptures to train preachers and to prepare the nation to be founded on God. The only way our constitution and the ways that our government has been set up by the miracle of God and the wisdom of God would work is if the leadership are believers in following of the word of God. Otherwise, it just falls apart. Democracy, when the man is wicked, doesn't work because they'll just get enough people to vote in their wicked ways. And we as a nation have received much light in comparison to the rest of the world. He's revealed much to us. Should we not be surprised at the judgment that's already begun on our nation? You say, Jim, how the judgment already begun? Romans chapter 1 says that God will give us over to our shameful lusts. Men with men, women with women, folks, the way that our nation is going, where homosexuality is not only being approved of, is being promoted. Our Supreme Court is saying men and women can marry men and men can marry men and women with women. Folks, God's given us over already to our shameful lusts. The judgment's already begun. And as you've heard me say, as you read the scriptures, we're not in the last of the last days when the world all comes against Jerusalem. We're not mentioned. To whom much is given much will be required and if jesus said capernaum's going to have it rough on the day of judgment what about the united states exactly they were given a tremendous light and he judged them harshly folks that's why the bible says and going back to your question in james chapter 3 for those of us who shouldn't all seek to be teachers because those of us who teach are going to be held in higher accountability a stricter judgment. Back to your question, yes, we've all received light because we've all received the Spirit, but at the same time, he gave some five talents, some two, others one, each according to their ability. Well, I'm just kind of referring back to you people say, oh, you need to be filled more with the Spirit. You already have it. You, everything you need for life and godliness you already have. It's now a matter of how much you're going to tap into it. By the way, does the Bible tell us whether or not we're going to know whether you're a five or a two or a one? No, the reason the Bible tells us that some are fives and some are twos and some are ones is so that we won't judge, compare ourselves. That's the only reason it's revealed to us. That's why in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Let no one think of himself more highly than he ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. Folks, you need to make sure that you are responding according to what God's revealed to you and you live the life that God has for you. Because one day you will be judged according to whether or not you put to use what God gifted you with and what he showed you. You can't pass the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, thank God we're going to be in heaven because of Jesus. That's not the judgment we're going to face. But we are going to face the judgment seat of Christ, where each one will receive what they're due according to their works, whether it was good or worthless. And you cannot stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and show him all of your discipleship diplomas. You cannot show him your Sunday school attendance. He's going to say, oh, so you had perfect attendance in Sunday school. Good. What did you do with what I showed you in Sunday school? Oh, you've taken every discipleship course that that LifeWays produced. Good for you. What did you do with what I showed you in those courses? You see, we are in a time where we just love to gather knowledge are you putting it to use? Do you believe this stuff that he's showing you? Because one day you will be judged in accordance with what you knew. Folks, I just want to encourage you in the time that we have left on this planet, pray for our nation. Pray for God's mercy. But at the same time, I just want to hope that you would be willing to say, Lord, what do you want for me to do? And that's not for me to determine or your neighbor to determine. That's between you and the Lord. Oh, and by the way, you're going to find his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You're going to find his commands are not burdensome, as it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. You're going to find actually that what God has for you to do is fun. It's exhilarating as you let him do it through you. What he's wired you to do and gifted you to do, you will love doing it because it's him doing it through you. But I'm gonna tell you, don't sit down and sit back and say, well, I go to Bible study. I go to church. God's not gonna judge you according to whether or not you went to church or went to Bible study. He's gonna judge you according to what you were shown. You need to talk a little louder so the microphone can pick you up. in this country needs to quit confusing Patriotism and Christianity. Yeah, that's definitely, that's another whole, yeah, we think patriotism is Christianity, it's not. Folks, let me just say this to you in love. God wants to see you use what he's given you. He he loves you. He's got more, like you just touched on, Bill. He's given us a lot more than we realize. And we live in a country where, well, as I looked at Warren's homework, he had that verse, Matthew chapter one, verse fourteen, in all the different translations. We live in a country where we're fighting over which translation's the best, and we got seventeen to choose from. Where some countries only have, some parts of the world only have one, or a page, or what God's given. Folks, we've been blessed with a lot of light. Oh, and let me say something else in the time we have left. I'm not talking about church. I want you to get to a point where when you think about Christianity, you don't think about the singing, the preaching, the parking lot, the nursery. The real church, the called out ones are people that love Jesus and love each other. And that's all it is. You know why we like coming together, this big old group on Tuesday nights? Because we're having church and we don't belong to the same church. We don't talk about church. We talk about Jesus. We don't fight over singing. We don't worry about prayer request time and all this stuff. We gather together to learn from Jesus and to love on each other. Go find out how God's wired you to do that. If you're a servant, serve somebody. If you're a mercy person, go show somebody mercy. If your gift is administration, find out where God would help you or use you to help ministries who need administration. Your gift is teaching and preaching. Go teach and preach wherever God has called you. See, a lot of times I'll deal with pastors and I'll say, well, if you had to design what you did in ministry, what would it be? And they say, well, I want to teach the word of God. I say, you know what? That sounds really good. But I want you to give me a real answer. Do you feel called to teach children? Do you feel called to teach adults? Do you feel called to teach people that are brand new in the faith? Or do you feel called to teach people who are stronger in the faith? See, just say, so I just want to teach the Word of God. No, 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 no. He's given you a specific gifting. My wife is wired to teach girls, junior high girls. I can think of a 1,000 people I'd rather teach than junior high girls. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Am I capable of teaching a brand new believer who is God, who is Jesus, what is sin, what is... Uh, yeah, but it would kill me. It would kill me. My gifting is to speak to believers who love the word and know the word and to take you deeper. And that's what I do and where I go do it. You go find where God's gifted you and how he uses you and just go do that. And one day you're going to hear him say, well done. If you think you're good because you went to church and went to Sunday school and went to Bible study on Tuesday night. Be careful to whom much is given. Much is being much is required. And all you did was just brag about how much God showed you. What'd you do with it? I love you. We'll see you next week.